John chapter 17, be in John chapter 17, and so we've moved on to the next chapter now. And um, just looking at verses 1 through 5, we won't be taking a lot of verses uh, this first um, session, uh, but next time we'll go on further into the Lord's Prayer, or as it is commonly called, uh, Christ's High Priestly Intercessory Prayer. As we recognize that uh, this prayer is quite different than the, the, um, the example prayer that he gave to his disciples, which we commonly refer to as Our Father Prayer. Um, but we find that this prayer is an, is an intercessory prayer. And as much as Jesus is seen as the uh, high priest in this particular prayer, in that he is praying to the Father, uh, we find that the book of Hebrews, of course, goes into a much more in-depth uh, view of the superiority of Christ and how that Christ is uh, greater than the angels, greater than the prophets, greater than the priestly system in the Old Testament, uh, greater than, uh, than any who had come before him, uh, uh, greater than Solomon, uh, though he was very wise and uh, of great understanding, he was only a man, and Christ is uh, the one who came to die for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried again, that he uh, arose on the third day, and that he is seated, he, is, he ascended unto the heavens above, and is seated at the very right hand of God, and even now makes intercession for us. And so Christ is our great high priest, and this is an intercessory prayer, uh, which is a, a, truly a very great uh, a prayer, an example of our Lord's intercession for his own disciples and also for his himself as he prays unto the Father concerning his own relationship. So we're going to be looking at several different areas here and as you see on the uh, back of your bulletin that I've included the highlights of the message, uh, we find that um, in this particular prayer uh, we note that the hour is come that the Son might be glorified. The hour has come that the Son might be glorified, and we know by that that he's he's talking to be that to that particular hour that he was uh, sent into this world that he might fulfill the very plan and purpose of God in redemption, and that he had come to die for the sins of the world. That hour of suffering, and as we note uh, in the book of Isaiah in chapter. 53, that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And we, we know that he came to offer his life as a ransom for many, as a ransom for many. And so we find that uh, he came to die for those that uh, would call upon his very name and believe upon him unto eternal life, and that being linked 
of course, to the foreknowledge and election of God that he has called a number of people unto himself. And we note here that, of course, in the Gospel of John, we find that Jesus calls a select group of disciples unto him. And each one of them are called of God to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And none of them were lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And I think that's a very important statement that we take note of, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Only Judas was lost from that group that he called unto himself. And, that, and the reason for that being that uh, he had been allowed to be a part of that select group of disciples that the fulfillment of the scripture may come about. It, there, was, there is no diminishing of the authority of Christ or of the saving grace of God or of the mercy of God in that Judas was not uh, preserved uh, as a true disciple because he was called a son of perdition and he, he willingly rejected Christ, though he followed after the footsteps of Jesus, and though he was among them, yet we find he was a traitor among them. And he was not a true follower of Jesus. But he was allowed to be there, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And uh, we recognize that this is true uh, in the world. That there are those who, who, who follow in the footsteps. There are those who are very close to um, believing. There are those who say they are Christians. There are those who profess something, but they do not possess Him. There are those who are religious. There are those who have some sense of, of uh, godliness among them, but at the same time they deny the power thereof. And uh, Judas was like that. He had every opportunity that he might be a true disciple of Christ. He had every opportunity. He witnessed the miracles of the Lord Jesus. He witnessed the very words of Christ that changed the hearts and lives of people. He witnessed the, that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, it appears that uh, because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and Judas was among the group and witnessed this, he betrayed him. He betrayed him. Afterwards, he was, of course, repentant of the very thing, uh, but he could not change what he had done. Uh, he could not turn back the clock and do anything different. He had sold out the Lord. He had betrayed our Savior. And uh, he had, uh, for 30 pieces of silver, uh, he had given him up to be crucified and to be judged of the Sanhedrin and of the high priest and ultimately of the Roman governor Pilate himself. Uh, five things that we see here uh, that... Uh, is involved in Jesus' ministry as God meant to glorify him. The first is the Father gave Jesus a work to do. The Father gave Jesus a work to do. You see, that work was to, to uh, fulfill the very plan and purposes of God. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 17. These words spoke Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour is come. 
glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Father, the hour has come. You see, the Father had given a work for the Lord Jesus to do. That work was that he was sent into the world that he might be the Savior of the world. To fulfill the very plan and purpose of God in uh, salvation. He, he was meant to, to die for the sins of the world. He was born to die for the sins of the world. And so it is that, that God the Son was born of the Virgin Mary conceived of the Holy Ghost and uh, brought into this world not by a human father not by human agency but by divine agency by the Father Himself that God the Father meant for His Son to, to carry out this work of redemption He says these words spoke Jesus and lifted up His eyes He is in prayer to God the Father concerning Himself and He says to He he. He's lifting up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. The hour is come. Glorify thy Son. The hour is come. You see, that very moment was the, the pinnacle of his life and ministry. It wasn't the miracles he did that was the pinnacle of his life and ministry, though those things gave great testimony to who he was. It wasn't that he had uh, uh, performed some particular miracle or said something uh, particularly that was fulfilling, though all that meant that he would fulfill the Scriptures. We find that he came to die for the sins of the world. That was the hour that he came to complete. That was the cup of, as, of suffering and shame and, uh, and atonement, as, as it were, that he was to die for the sins of the world. You see, his hour had come. That very moment when all these things should be brought to uh, full fruition, that the Son of God would be glorified in that he would fulfill the very plan and purpose of God that the Son may be glorified. And also he says here, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee. The Son was to glorify the Father. So the work also meant that not only the Son would be glorified, but the Father would be glorified. And when we think about the triunity of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we find they are co-equal and co-eternal in that great redemptive work of God. They are co-equal and co-eternal, and that the Father meant to glorify the Son, and the Son meant to glorify the Father, and that all these things would come to pass, that God's work of salvation or redemption would be fulfilled. It would be fulfilled. And therefore, the gospel that we know and love, the gospel which we preach, is that gospel of salvation, the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so the gospel is meant to be preached universally. And it is that power of God that comes through because of the fulfillment of the very word of God as the hour came upon the Lord Jesus Christ to 
go to the cross and to fulfill the Father's will. In verse 2, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. To give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is the second area we want to consider here. The Father gave Jesus believers. The Father gave Jesus believers. Um, He came to save people. He came to save believers. You know, we, we call ourselves believers because we are followers of Christ. We call ourselves believers because we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as much as it is the power of God and the salvation to save us, God requires us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And so human responsibility is a part of of the great work of redemption. Human responsibility. And we find that human responsibility comes about because Christ himself was given and because that redemptive work of God is made known unto us, because God himself sent his Son, and because that work of redemption is fulfilled through Christ. God gave him the work of redemption. So we can become believers because of the work of redemption. Because of the work that God gave to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can be known as believers. As thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given Him. To as many as thou hast given Him. You see, God has given Jesus many to believe. His life was given as a ransom for many. Isaiah chapter 53, and I guess maybe it's around verse 11, somewhere in that that vicinity. But we find that God gave His Son to die as a ransom for many, many, many people. Of course, when we say many, we can't can't, uh, come up with a definite number, can we? Nor should we. It, it, it isn't universal in the sense that everybody is going to be saved because the responsibility of man is to believe. But it is universal in the sense that God has given many. There is no limit. God is waiting for people to, to come and to, and to call upon the Son. And of course, the, God is long-suffering to usward and not willing that any should perish. There is plenty of gospel preaching in the Bible so that we can say many, so that we can say whosoever will, so that we can say all who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. That language is is not out of place in our gospel preaching. In fact, it must be in our gospel preaching because we do not know who will come, nor should we ever say who would. We are called to preach the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. Spurgeon once said, if I knew who the elect were, and they had a yellow stripe up their back, I would go about pulling up shirt tails. But he, you know, it's just a way of saying he didn't know. He didn't know. He's called the prince of preachers because he preached to the many. He preached to all those who would come and hear All those who would come and listen, the Spirit speaketh expressly to the churches. 
and we find that the word of God is meant to be given freely to all people, to the many. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. It is true that the many are out there, and Jesus has been given eternal life that they might come. But it also says, as many as thou hast given him. And so we recognize God is the one who gives salvation. God is the one who gives salvation. You know, some people go on the assumption that they can come at the last minute. They go on the assumption that they can, they can uh, it's, in, it's within their control. They go on the assumption, oh, it's not too late yet, I still have plenty of time to live. They go on all kinds of personal assumptions about, about their, their, uh, their idea of eternal life and the idea of heaven and, and they'll make it in the end and they, they think they're all set. When in reality, that isn't the case. God is the one who is in control. He is the one who is the sovereign over the world. That He has created the world and all they that dwell therein. That He Himself sent the Son into the world. That He might be known as the Savior of the world. And God is at the helm. And He has given us a limited amount of time to believe and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Three score and ten, except by reason of strength, was the last time I heard. I mean, you know, some of us live to be 70, some of us live to be 80, some of us live to be longer by reason of strength. And God gives that strength that they might live longer, right? But there's a limited amount of time. Uh, we don't have forever to make this decision for Christ. And so we, we call uh, upon people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ while they can. Today is the day of salvation. And, and we make an appeal as well we should make that appeal. We need to make that appeal to people. Going on reading in verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And this is life eternal, that they, they, the believers, they, the many, they, the ones that have been given to Jesus, they, that they might know Jesus, they might know thee, God, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You see, if anybody wants to know what the will of God is, this is it. This is life eternal, that they might know thee. The will of God is that man might know God. That is the will of God. God desires to give eternal life to as many as believe, but they must believe. They must have faith. The word typically is pestis, which means to believe, to have faith. They must believe. And we must compel them to believe. They will not come. They must be sought. They will not come. They must be brought. You see, we have a job. The old evangelist would say, Go out into the fields, for they are white unto harvest. 
the old evangelist would cry out and and say, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And he would say, Come, come and believe and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, for today is the day of salvation. This is life eternal, that they might know thee. They might know God. The only true God. Now this is, uh, of course, very exclusive today. The only true God. Uh, today, you know, is uh, uh, inclusive. Everybody wants to be inclusive. Uh, is your God Buddha? Is your God Confucius? Is your God Muhammad? Is your God uh, some Krishna? Some guru? Who is your God? Is it some idol you keep in your bedroom? Is it some deity which you have espoused? What is it? What is your God, you see? Today, the, the gods of this world are many. They are many. Humanism is a god. Philosophy is a god. Psychology is a god. Education is a god. Money is a god. There are many gods in this world as well as those which are placed on the altars of some people's hearts which are no gods. And even Paul, when he preached, what did he say? He says, you even have an altar to the unknown god. He says, but I tell you, there is only one, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he came to die for your sins, according to the Scriptures. Yes, we must realize that there are many gods in this world, but there is only one true God. There is only one true God. And, and in the Word of God, you know, he is known by Yahweh or Jehovah. Or just plain God, Elohim, Adonai, Adonai, Adonai. He is known as, as, as the true God. The, the, the God who is there, as Francis Schaeffer put it, the God who is there, the one we are compelled to, to know who, who He is. Because He is the only true God. And if you do not search out that God, if you do not know Him to be that true God of the Word and of the Bible, then you know no God. You have no God. This is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Interesting here is Jesus is praying. He not only uses the word Theos, which is God, He uses His own name, Jesus Christos. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christos. He uses that as the word Christos is a New Testament word for Messiah. And Jesus prays unto God the Father concerning Himself, His work, and the believers that God had given to him. And he says that this is life eternal, that they, those whom you have given to me, might know you, the only true God, and know me, Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christos, the one who was sent in the world to die for the sins of the world. Thirdly, the Father gave Jesus glory. He gave Him glory. 
He came to glorify the Son, as we noted in verse 1 already where he says, These words spoke Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. And so he meant to glorify the Son of God. Looking at verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, And so it is that Jesus meant to glorify the Father. He had come to do that work of redemption. He had come as the Son of God to bring forth the true Word of God that God sent Him, the incarnate of God. God sent Him into the world, manifest Him as the true Son of God, and Jesus meant to glorify the Father by the very things that He was doing. And the Father meant to glorify the Son by the very things that He said concerning Him. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At least on two occasions He made that statement. At the baptism and at the time of the glorification of the Son... And so we find that he meant to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. I have glorified thee on the earth. And so it is, Jesus glorified the Father. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so what is he saying here? The former glory that Jesus had with the Father, now the Father would glorify the Son, and that glory would be restored to Him. I remember when Jesus came into this world, He took upon Him human flesh. God the Son took upon Him human human flesh. And that human flesh was a veil... It was a veil. It's like drawing a curtain down over the glory of God with humanity. And we find that the Father drew that veil down over the Son as He came into this world. He was born as a lowly baby in a stable. And we find that uh, his life was, was full of the sufferings and difficulties of humanity. Growing up as a young child, no doubt he went through the same experiences that every young child goes through. He had to allow somebody else to care for him. He couldn't care for himself. He had to mature and grow as a human being though he was the Son of God, though he is God incarnate, yet he had to allow this lesser, this lesser work of God to be done upon him as a veil upon his life. Nobody knew him to be the Son of God save those who were threatened by him, such as Herod and how he desired to to send soldiers to Bethlehem and to kill all the children because he was so menial himself that he felt threatened about by this little child. 
Well, that was typical of kings, wasn't it? Whenever a king ascended to a throne, he made sure he got rid of all the heirs. He killed them all, took the sword to them, shed blood everywhere he could go because, because he was so afraid that he was going to lose his throne. Well, we find that Jesus had to be hid away. He went to Egypt because he had to be hid away. Even God told him, go into Egypt. He told Joseph by an angel, take the child, go to Egypt, stay there until Herod dies. Until Herod is out of the way. Then you can come back. And then, what did he do? He went off to, to Galilee. He went off to Nazareth. And became a lonely apprentice to a carpenter. And worked with, worked with wood. And learned at the feet of his, of his father Joseph, of his, of his stepfather. And there he finished his growing up days until he was ready. Until the last prophet of the Old Testament came forth with camel skins and long hair as a Nazarite and began preaching Christ and became preaching, came preaching repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so John came preaching Christ and Jesus came forth. One who would step into the shoes of these well-worn sandals and he would tread the Judean hillsides and he would wait upon God for those times to be fulfilled. For that time to be fulfilled. And now, O Father, glorify me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was before the world was. You see, this, this verse actually speaks concerning the pre-incarnate Christ. The pre-existent Christ. The eternal Christ of God. That verse right there can be used as supportive of the pre-incarnate glory of Jesus Christ Himself. He is the one from eternity past and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And here in this particular place, the word world is the word cosmos, and it simply means created world. Doesn't mean mankind. Doesn't mean worldly system. It means created world. Before the created world, before Genesis 1-1, when God created, Jesus existed with the Father in heaven. His glory was there with the Father in heaven. The pre-incarnate Christ. And now he prays. He says, Father, glorify me. Glorify me with thine own self. With yourself. You see, as they are called co-equal and co-eternal and, and existed co-equally in, in eternity past 
He now wants to go back to be with the Father and resume His glory which He had with the Father in heaven. That glory which is totally of God and is a glory which far goes beyond any sense that we know of human glory. With the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The Father gave Jesus glory. Next we see the Father gave Jesus words. Words. And we find in verse 8, for instance, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Now there's much in there to unwrap, and I won't try to do that all today, because uh, it's, I don't have time for that, but... I want you to I want you to recognize that the God the Father gave Jesus the words in other words the revelation the revelation a simple definition of the revelation of God is simply Words or information given by God that otherwise man would not know unless, unless God give it. Unless God give it. Revelation is not of man. Revelation is of God. Revelation is Jesus coming into the world as the incarnate of God. Revelation is the angels announcing to Mary that she would conceive and bear a child and his name would be Jesus for he would save his people from their sin. You see, revelation comes from God. Jesus would go back to be with the Father. Jesus was the embodiment, the manifest embodiment of revelation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1, 1, 1, right? Revelation. He is, he is the divine Logos. He is the revelation of God. Jesus is the Word of God. You see, God gave those words, gave that Word to Jesus. Gave that revelation of Jesus. He gave it. And then... Also, lastly, the Father gave Jesus authority in His name. Look at verses 11 and 12. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Note the word name. Also in verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The word name here has to do with not only Jesus, but God himself. It is that name above all other names. Well, certainly God's name is above all other names. I understand the... the uh, the Jewish people, especially those who are scribes and of, perhaps of the highest order of the study of the Scripture, when it comes to writing, 
the Word of God, when it comes to the name for God, they won't write it. They may put down a little mark or something, but they won't write it. Because it is most holy. It is, it is God that they are talking about here. And they won't write it. But they acknowledge it. You know, God is, is truly above all. He's above all. He is the creator of heaven and earth and all they that dwell therein. God. The one who gave the divine revelation of all things. The one who is the revelation of, uh, to man. God is the revelation to man. God is the authority over man. God is the sovereign of the universe. And Jesus was given the authority by His name. By His very name. And so, in verse 11, And now I am no more in the world. He's speaking as though He had already left. But these are in the world. Oh, Jesus knew where He was going. He was going back to be with the Father. And the disciples would be left. <clears throat> And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name, the name of God, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. Jesus says, I am, I am one with you, Father. Keep them in the authority of your name. Well, we do pray unto God the Father. In Jesus' name. Can we approach God in any other name? There is no other name given under heaven where man must be saved. You see, God has given the authority of His Word. He, Jesus is the divine revelation. Jesus is the divine incarnation. Jesus is the divine redemption. We have no other means of approaching God but through the name of Jesus. And so we come in the authority of Jesus' name unto God the Father in heaven. And we worship God the Father in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Father gave authority in His name to Jesus. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in my name. Verse 12. I kept them in my name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. As Pastor Vaux said, you know, we're in the hall, we're, we're in the hand, we're in, in Jesus' hand. No man can pluck us out of his hand. Jesus is keeping us by the power of his authority as his believers. And none of them is lost but the son of position, perdition. And we've already spoken to that. Judas rejected Christ. The others believed that he was the true Messiah of God. And that being that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
So we must recognize that God has a plan of redemption. And He meant for it to be carried out. And you are part of that plan of redemption. You are the end result of God's great work of revelation of Himself and redemptive work of God the Father that you may know Him and the power of His resurrection. That you might know life eternal. That they might know Thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. You see, we have a very close relationship to God the Father because of Jesus Christ. And in the closing comment, number six, the Son in turn gave believers God's words and God's glory. And th those are some references you can point to there. But I won't take the time to look those up because we're out of time anyway. Yep, oh, we're on the dot. Okay. <laughs> So, I trust you uh, are getting a little bit of interest in chapter 17 of John. There's much here for us to learn, more than what I am able to impart to you. So allow the Holy Spirit to teach it to you and minister it to your hearts. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we give thanks and praise to you for your blessing this afternoon. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ who is the living word. Thank you, Father, that you have given the Son that we might know thee, O holy God, and that we might know Jesus Christ and the power of redemption. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.